Hello and welcome to the Tech Diplomacy podcast brought to you from San Francisco by the Norwegian Consulate General and Open Austria. I'm Greer Abe Henriksen, Consul General of Norway. Technology has always played a role in human life, yet over the past decade we have seen this role explode to a degree we can barely comprehend. As tech companies grow in scale, reach and wealth, governments have begun focusing efforts on bringing these new players into the diplomatic discussion. In this podcast we invite diplomats, researchers, civil society and tech companies to talk about anything and everything at the intersection between new and emerging technologies, regulations and its implications. Join us as we explore tech diplomacy. Hi everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Tech Diplomacy podcast. I'm Cecilia Herslet and I'm the advisor at the Norwegian Consulate in San Francisco. I'm your host today together with the Norwegian Consul General Grirabe Henriksen. Our guest today is Alexis Vikowski, author and professor at Columbia University. Welcome. What an honor to have you here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. Yeah, welcome Alexis and I'm so happy and honored that you would join us in this podcast. You have an impressive background working and writing on technology, government and power. You hold a PhD in information science from the State University of New York, Albany, and um, a bachelor in Chinese from Connecticut College. Following almost two decades in public service, you now work as professor for um, professional practice in applied technologies at Columbia University, and you're writing a follow-up book to the information trade, which we will talk about in a minute. But before we get into today's topic, can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up focusing on technology and the significance of the rise of tech giants? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, it's it's, it's a, a real treat. So I got into technology sort of by accident um, because when I was finishing college, I studied Chinese in college, as you mentioned. I then got a Fulbright scholarship to live in China for a year. And this was in the late 90s, mid 90s, pre-advanced technology China. And I was just learning the language. And when I got back to the United States, technology had developed tremendously in my year abroad. The internet had emerged, email had emerged, and I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. And as I was trying to catch up, I realized, oh, this is just like another language and another culture and almost like another country. There's a different way of behaving using these platforms like email and instant messaging. And from there, I was sort of hooked. In your book, you reflect upon the big tech companies and you write, these companies have formidable influence over the way our world works on individual, societal and geopolitical levels. These tech companies are unlike anything we've ever encountered before. And then you introduce the term net states. Please explain for us what it's net states. Absolutely. So one of the things that I realized as I was studying the rise of technology and working at the United States Department of State, um, at the United Nations, is that this concept of a country um, or what we in diplomacy sometimes call nation states, it's not necessarily uh, something that's been around forever. And it doesn't mean that it's a permanent fixed number of them in the world. 
about 120 years ago, there were maybe you know 70 or 80 countries in the world, and now there are over 200. And this changes over time. So I realized that one of the things that makes a new country come into existence is generally because power has shifted. Some group of people who didn't have power before suddenly do. And that's when new countries are generally recognized and Often it happens because of a war, but not necessarily always. So I was thinking, well, who has power now in our world? And it's really in terms of influence and reach and the number of people who have are connected to the these entities, it, it's not necessarily countries or nation states, but it's the tech giants. So I introduced this concept called net states to make this kind of argument among the people in who, who focus on the things like who has power on, around the globe um, to suggest that it's not necessarily just the people who have land, but the people who have massive economies, um, the major tech giants are, there's several of them that have, you know, are trillion dollar valued companies and for the first time in the history of the world. So there's a lot of shifting power over these very recent years that it's not necessarily between countries, but between countries and these uh, tech giants that have really touched the lives of so many people on Earth. Well, well this is so fascinating, and, and I think this is a really good segue into um, our next question to you, which is um, on tech diplomacy. We've seen tech diplomacy emerge um, as a new discipline here in Silicon Valley for the last seven years. Uh, I think beginning with the establishment of the Danish tech ambassador in the tech embassy in uh, 2017. And you've been part of this conversation from the beginning, contributing with articles about diplomacy and technology um, many years back. Um, one example is uh, the article, America must have a technology ambassador for the digital world. And another one is nations need ambassadors to big tech how do you reflect on these developments in light of your own writing? So it's it's wonderful to see these developments and especially to see them arise so quickly. Um, now, some people may think seven years is, doesn't sound very fast, but in terms of government um, and having worked in bureaucracies for a long time, it, it is pretty, pretty fast um, for so many countries to recognize that diplomats to the tech powers are are necessary. Um, when I started writing about net states back, the first time was the article I published in Wired in 2017, which I had actually written in 2015 and nobody would publish it because it sounded crazy. Um, and then by the time I wrote the book, Casper Kling, who was the first world's first tech ambassador from Denmark, as you mentioned, was the only one in the world. Then fast forward to now, uh, just a few months ago, um, there was this launch of this tech diplomacy network, as you mentioned, um, with in partnership with a number of the consul generals, such as um, you know the folks in Silicon Valley and the World Economic Forum. And it's no longer considered a strange idea that regulations and fines are not enough to engage with the powers that are big tech. We need to use every tool in the toolbox. So regulations are one way to keep these powers in check, these rising powers of big tech. But 
we also need other avenues. And diplomacy is exactly that other kind of, um, has exactly that kind of expertise, the other avenues that are not just about sticks, but carrots as well. So I'm thrilled to see the development of the rise of tech diplomacy and so many countries around the world uh, appointing people to these positions as tech diplomats and tech ambassadors. This is fascinating and thank you so much. So you have a great point here and, and in your book, you make a fascinating point as well and mention a couple of examples where tech actors actually take upon them governmental services and provide basic infrastructure. Tell us more about this. Yes, so this was one of the earlier examples that I was starting to see that gave me a sense that something was different about what big tech was doing than other massive corporations. Because it's not as if the world has never seen before global companies, Coca-Cola, for instance, or McDonald's or Starbucks. They have been around for a long time. And there was the, you know, in the colonial era, um, there was plenty of other kinds of trading companies as well. The difference with big tech, though, is that they're not just selling their own products and services. They're also stepping into areas that formerly were only the domain of government. For instance, it would be kind of crazy to suggest that McDonald's might have a counterterrorism team. But Facebook certainly did. And the other tech giants all appointed their own because with the rise of ISIS back in 2015, after the Paris attacks, the all of these kinds of recruiting movements that were happening with very violent ends were happening on their platforms. So Facebook and Google and the others, they, they really had no choice but to address, you know, what do we do with terrorists using our platforms to recruit and organize and carry out attacks? So this was one of the first things that caught my eye was these tech giants kind of stepping into this area of defense. And And it came also to my attention when there were natural disasters. So, for instance, there was the example I use in my book was about Hurricane Maria, which wiped out the infrastructure, uh, the power infrastructure in Puerto Rico. And the United States government at that time did not respond for weeks. But within days, we saw Elon Musk with his solar um, solar city and Tesla batteries come in and offer to rebuild the island's electrical grid through solar. And Google had stepped in with some pilot projects to connect the island to the internet and to phone service. So these are just a couple of early examples. And now there's almost too many to count. I was just updating um, my myself on what was the most recent example. And Amazon has released an announcement that they are interested in um, partnering with anybody who wants to work on IoT, Internet of Things devices, with their program they're calling Sidewalk. This means that anybody that has an Amazon device, whether it's a Ring doorbell or an Alexa in their home um, or uses Amazon products in other ways, they can, Amazon itself, can share that kind of connectivity between those devices in this very low um, bandwidth kind of way, not enough to support internet usage like you and I would need for work, but plenty to support the Internet of Things network. This was just announced three days ago, and according to their press release, they have 90% of the United States covered through their connected devices. So very quietly, 
tech giants are moving away from just products and services that we know about, like shopping on Amazon or using a, an iPhone, for instance, to the infrastructure of connectivity itself. So it's not as flashy, but it's very powerful. You make a great point here. We also see that big tech is making investments in future-leaning infrastructure. Share your thoughts on this. Absolutely. So the Internet of Things um, connectivity is one just one example of that. So one thing that I think more people are more probably aware of is satellite in, um, internet connectivity, which has become something that has been a very prominent player in terms of how a war that is occurring right now is has unfolded. So when Russia invaded Ukraine and Ukraine's internet connectivity was knocked out, again, Starlink and other satellite internet providers kind of stepped in to say, we can help to reconnect those in Ukraine to internet services. This was not a decision that was made by any national government, but by private sector actors, which is a pretty extraordinary change of um, dynamics than we have seen in previous wars. So I think in the future, we're going to see more and more of not just these kinds of big announcements about, you know, internet from space from people who are very famous like Elon Musk, but involvement from the private sector tech companies, um, especially the tech giants that have so many resources around the globe to quietly help to support um, policy decisions or the outcome of conflicts even um, in ways that we may not be aware of. This is fascinating. We can call it technology for good. We see that when the big tech makes good projects and do something good in order to to sort of solve the global or the world problem, for example, like climate environment, they certainly have an impact because they are giants. Absolutely. And, and this is the interesting challenge that we have to think about as we watch their growth and the rise of their power and how it's used, is that there's a tremendous amount of good that their technology, this new, these new technologies can provide. But they're also, because of their power and their reach, and because the people who are running these tech companies are not elected by anyone or necessarily even people we're aware of, um, we need to be conscious of how that power can be misused or unintended consequences can develop, even if they had the best of intentions to start with. So, for instance, with the recent development of ChatGPT and all of these other kinds of applications of, of AI and machine learning, there's a tremendous excitement about all of the amazing things it can help us with. As humans, we are subject to forgetting things or missing details and machines can help augment our attention to detail and our awareness of all kinds of things that we would miss on our own. But then the question becomes, at what point is it get away from us? And how could it be misused? And I think this is one of the things that we need to be paying really careful attention to now. Absolutely, I agree. And I'm interested to take that a step further and consider How can we protect our next generation and children and the young people from the downsides of technology? So here is where I think we need everybody all the time helping in every way they can. Because 
there is really no single solution to protect children from using technology and the dangers of how technology can be misused without completely shutting down their tech use at all or, or perhaps interfering with free speech. So I think it really needs to be a collaboration where we educate people from a very young age um, about how to use technology safely, what misinformation and disinformation looks like and sounds like and how to prevent its spread. Um, and there are examples of countries who have done a very good job with this. So Finland, for instance, um, I was just reading about an, um, another survey that was done by the Open Society Institute in January of 2023 has once again ranked number one out of 41 countries that were surveyed in terms of helping educate their young people about misinformation and disinformation and preventing its spread. And one of the reasons that they have been so successful for years in this is that they start in preschool and kindergarten and all the way through higher education. So it's not as if it's a lesson that's taught once and then forgot about. Uh, you don't take a class when you're a teenager and, and then it goes away. It's something that's a part of their curriculum at every stage of a, pers a young person's life. So that is, I think, one of the things that countries can do and governments can do. And then I think the tech companies themselves are also realizing that if their platforms become unsafe, then either their parents will not permit their children to use their services or there will be bans on services, um, as we've heard from the potential the discussions in the U.S. Congress about potentially banning TikTok. So I think the tech companies themselves also have an interest in making sure that they don't um, neglect safe usage by, by young people. But it's, it's a very tricky issue um, to not squash free speech. So I think that's why everybody needs to really be involved in a collaborative way. San Francisco is the epicenter of the tech world. The other day when I was going for a walk in the Bay Area, I saw a boat on the fjord and suddenly it took off in the air and I realized it was a wing foil boat. I never seen anything like that before. I also heard they use VR Googles in the hospital here. It means that you can go for a hike in Himalayas while sitting home in your sofa. And I also went to the headquarters of one of the big tech companies the other day and it was warm toilet seats on the toilet. How cool is that? It's pretty great. <laughs> so what is the next big thing in technology, you think? VR and warm toilet seats. I also think that there's two kinds of new technology developments. There are the, the, the steps forward, so improvements on the existing technologies that we have. So, for instance, when the iPhone was first released, it was much smaller than the iPhones that exist today, It didn't have the ability, the capability to um, have streaming video, for instance, um, and all that has changed. So there's been a lot of those improvements. That's one kind of improvement we'll see. Things that exist will get better, faster, easier to use. But then there are also these paradigm shift technologies, such as the internet itself, such as the iPhone, which made it possible to basically put a supercomputer in your pocket and it was all yours. Before that, we shared computers with our families and our roommates. So there are these big leaps forward that I think are almost impossible to predict. But these are the ones that I think we're starting to realize 
we need to be we need to do a better job at trying to predict. And I think GPT and the rise of artificial intelligence is probably among those big paradigm shifts that has people, I think, rather nervous because it represents a, a massive change in life and society. And a lot of people are still getting used to the changes from the internet, from the smartphone. And then there's a lot of the world that's still not even connected to either of these things. So... I think what's next is thinking very carefully about what we unleash onto the world in terms of technology and making sure that from the very beginning of the design phase, we're thinking not just about what we want it to do, but what could go wrong, how it might be misused, what are the unintended consequences and the second order impacts. That's the kind of thinking we need from the get-go. So we need to be creating technology that is not just making us faster or more efficient, but more humane and more compassionate and more connected, not just in the literal sense, but with each other. And I think that that is an understanding that we are starting to see rise with this kind of open call to pause on the development of AI technologies like ChatGPT. It's just, it's very fast, it's too much, and we can't even really wrap our arms around the existing technologies that have created so much polarization and misery. So I think what we're going to see moving forward is not just coders and engineers and programmers getting involved in the design of new products, but policymakers and philosophers and ethicists and all kinds of people who maybe would never have thought before that they had something to contribute to the development of new tech but now we see are absolutely essential to make sure that we don't create things that end up destroying us. Bill Gates was recently in Oslo in Norway and he says that AI is the biggest thing in this decade. It is a future, a new internet. However, there are also downsides to the new technology. And last week we saw that close to 2,000 people signed a letter and called upon a pause of the AI development. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think that this is, I, I'm not surprised that um, people such as Bill Gates are, are proclaiming this is the next step forward in this kind of paradigm shift of technology, because it seems very obvious that it, it, it is along one of the, the things we need to watch for. In terms of the letter that called for a pause on its development, my, I, I am in, on the one hand glad to see that it happened, because a lot of the people that are on the, who have signed that letter, they're serious thinkers, they're serious developers and researchers. Um, it is not just a, I think, a marketing stunt. I think it's a very serious, thoughtful group of people who have put their name on that letter. My concern is that it might be past the point where it's going to make much of a difference. I think that there have been a lot of people calling for a slowing down of the process of developing AI over many years. And As we've seen with so many other technologies, once it's developed, it's hard to roll it back. You can't really put the genie back in the bottle. So now that even with this call for a pause, I think governments, regulators, diplomats especially, need to also get into high gear to use this six-month pause period because I don't think that it means that people are going to actually stop their development of AI And I think that we, as you know, people who are concerned about its impact on society, need to work extra hard now to position ourselves so that we can help to 
make sure that it's shaped and shared with the world in a responsible way. So before we round off, I want to ask you one thing. Please tell us about your next projects. Any new books coming soon? So that's, I think I've, I've hinted at it a bit as um, we've talked over the last uh, 20 minutes or so, which is that I'm very focused not just on the power of the tech giants that we already can see, but the powers that are maybe behind the scenes and that we are not necessarily as aware of. And it's funny, it's when you talk about things like infrastructure, um, people tend to fall asleep. It doesn't sound very interesting. Not certainly not as interesting as VR or um, drones, for instance. But when you think about the connectivity that makes this phone call possible, that makes this podcast possible, that makes all of our connectivity possible, um, it relies on infrastructure that someone owns. Nowadays, more and more of that infrastructure from the undersea cables that are being bought up by big tech to these Internet of Things networks of the low bandwidth um, um, network that I referenced earlier that Amazon is, is just unrolled, um, unveiled. Those are going to be these, I think, new roots of power, these new networks of power. They're not visible. They're not something we're paying attention to in our day-to-day -day lives. But if some private entity has control over an entire nation or an entire series of nations, the whole region of nations, connectivity to each other, then they have a tremendous amount of control over people's daily lives all the way up to a nation's ability to defend itself. So I think those are going to be some of the things we need to watch. And then in terms of what we can see, to have people become more aware of, again, these questions about what are we developing the technologies for? It's not enough just to do it because we can. We need to think about what must we do and what really must we not Where do we draw a line to say, this is not good for us as, as human beings, as societies, and as uh, a people on earth? So I think that these questions of both the hidden networks of power and then also the way that we can get everybody who uses technology to think more carefully about what we create that has so much power, both of those things need to be simultaneously on all of our minds. So it's a small book, a uh, small project, but I, uh, I'm very excited to continue to work on it and to share it with you all when it's finished. Wow, well, that's uh, maybe a small book, but it's, uh, it's a big topic. So uh, <laughs> we're looking forward to reading that, Alexis. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about how big tech transform our world.